Okay, so today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be going through verses 14 through 21. Can I have somebody read that out for us, please? 1421? Yes. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Thank you. What a passage. Well, that's a lot of stuff in there. Um, to be honest, when Danny asked me to do this and gave me this chunk of scripture, I was uh, oppressed. And uh, a little nervous. I'm still working through the nervous part. But um, there's a lot of stuff in this. There's a lot of buzzwords, too, that draw the reader in. You know, we're talking about knowing the love of Christ. Paul is trying at length to describe this love, and he's still coming up short. We're talking about the fullness of God. We're talking about the glorious riches of God. The God who is able to do more than we are able to think or imagine. And so when we come to this kind of passage, we're drawn in immediately as readers, saying, man, there's a lot for me here. There's a lot for me here. And there are a couple ways that we can go about reading this passage as believers and say, what does this speak to me? What has this got for me? Now, there are a couple different ways that we could come to this passage and read it. We can come to this passage and say, wow, look at all this here for me. There, he's talking about the deep love of Christ. This deep love that, that I can know that is for me. And we can be drawn into it very, very personally. And we can almost have a narcissistic reading of this of, to where we're drawn into this is all about how God has done everything solely for the express purpose of benefiting me and loving me for my own edification and fulfillment. Or... The opposite side of the spectrum is that we can come to this passage and we can completely gloss over some of these very important things. Personally, that's where I'm at. I have a tendency, my own heart leans towards just skimming right over this and saying, yeah, I know, I'm familiar with the love of Christ. Yeah, Jesus died to, to, to overcome my sin. Quite obviously, he loves me. I've got it. Let's move on. We also have a tendency to believe that this is a love letter right here. If we just take this little passage, we put it on our wall or on our mirror, and we get up in the morning, we, we have a little devotional, right? God loves me, and he's done all this for me. But if we look at it within the context of Ephesians, we see that this is not a love letter written solely for our purpose, but rather that it's, a, it's an appeal to us to understand fully the magnitude of what God has done for us. Danny spoke last week about the great plan that God has, has done and that has been realized in Christ. That is the gospel. So we need to come to this and be prepared to say, I'm not going to bring in my own definition of strength or my own definition of love 
and read it into the text here. But rather, we let Scripture determine what it means by strength and what it means by love. When we come into this passage, we don't read love as being that feeling that we get when we, you know, the butterfly effect. But rather, we, we couch it in the greater context of Scripture. So, as, as we see in, in, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul goes on. In Ephesians 1, he lists all of the things that Christ has done for us. All of the riches that the Christian has at his disposal because of the work of Christ. Ephesians 2, he talks about the nature of salvation, the miracle of bringing death to life spiritually. And then in, in chapter 3, he talks about the fullness of this gospel, that the Gentiles have been brought in and that this gospel has been fully realized in Christ. So, he's prepared the, the, the reader here. He's given him a whole lot to work with. And now one expects Paul to launch into... Because of all this, now you need to do this. Because you have all this, use it. It's like a coach before the Super Bowl getting his team ready. And he's telling them, come on, we've been preparing this whole time. This is the biggest game of our life. Now get out and go. But Paul says, wait. For this reason, I bow my knees. So before he launches into what we need to do, he stops and prays. He says, for this reason. So obviously that alludes to what he's been speaking to prior to that. So what exactly has led Paul to be on his knees before the Father asking all of these things for the believer? Well, the first thing is the nature of the plan. He described it in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. Would somebody read verses 10 and 11 for me, please? According to his eternal purpose, holy his intent was that not through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. So, the nature of the plan is one of the things that leads Paul to pray. Some qualities of this plan. One, it is timeless. It has begun since before the foundations of the world this plan has been in the mind of God. And what was the reason? It was for the purpose of his glorification. So that his infinite wisdom might be put on full display in the midst of the church. Which we are an integral part of. And it's to be put on display in front of the rulers and authorities that are in the heavenlies. So when we come to this we say this is a grand stage. And Paul realizes that. So he comes to the Father, the one who is capable of working in this situation. Which leads to the second thing that leads Paul to prayer. It is the character of God himself, and it is all the resources that are at the Christian's disposal. Will somebody read verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 for me, please? Blessed Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That was a lot, actually. Thanks. And it's longer when you read it out loud than when you read it in your head, right? <laughs> hindsight's twenty twenty. So, as we said, the character of God and the arsenal at the Christian's disposal are, are, are some things that have led to Paul's prayer, that, that provoked Paul to prayer. So, could some, some, somebody listed some of these things that have uh, characteristics or qualities of God in this passage here that we just read, or some of the things that are at the Christian's disposal? He adopted us. Kind of a father would say you there. Yeah. Grafting people in. His kindness and his grace. go on and on, right? I won't make you because it's one of those questions that's right in front of you. You know it. We all know the things that are listed here that are qualities of God that are good and the things that he's bestowed upon the believer. And so Paul comes here and he appeals to God because one, he understands the nature of the plan. Two, he understands all that is at the Christian's disposal and the character of that God who's given that, who's disposed of that and thirdly, he understands the predicament of the believer. He understands the nature of the believer. Somebody will look in um, chapter 2 and read what, uh, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Thanks. So, Paul's saying we have a big plan here. And you, the church, play an important role in this. But this church, these are the people who he was describing in chapter 2 here. People who were completely dead. Not only dead, but also openly rebellious to that God. And so Paul's saying... Let us not be so comfortable and dependent and reliant upon ourselves. Let us not forget the fact that we have infirmities. We have weaknesses. When I was 18, a senior in high school, I had a best friend named Walt. And Walt and I were, uh, we wanted to be class clowns. I don't know if we actually even accomplished that. But we had a senior prank that we wanted to pull. And we wanted to do a really good one. We wanted to make it very... Uh, 
comedic. But as the time for that started to dwindle, we started to run out of ideas. And the comedic turned into the destructive. Well, needless to say, Walt picked me up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and we had <coughs> just basically gathered everything that we could out of our garage. And that happened to be crowbar, uh, matches, gas fluid. We get to the school, and uh, by the time we left, an entire wing of our high school was on fire. Now, the next morning, my friend Walt, he left for the Bahamas for 10 days. And I was there by myself. And I was still going to parties and hanging out with friends. And people had known that. I mean, I wasn't very smart, so I had been talking about how I'd like to do a nice senior prank. And so naturally, my friends were inquiring about whether or not it had been me. And uh, you know, I, I, I tried to do my best to lie. And uh, eventually, I started to crumble beneath the weight of um, my conscience and the pressure of the situation. So I confided in my parents. My parents got, a, got an attorney, and we realized that charges were, were coming swiftly in my direction. And my dad, who had never prayed with me before in my life, I remember vividly, he, he gets me in the living room, and tears are in his eyes, and he stands there with me and puts his hand on my shoulders, and he prays with me. And so one would ask, why? what led my dad to pray for me that day? He had never done it before. My dad wasn't a Christian. What was it? Well, the thing is, my dad understood the nature of the situation. He understood the gravity of the situation. He understood the repercussions that could come as a result of it. And he also realized that he was at his wit's end. He could not... He could not manipulate the situation anymore. It was beyond his control, so he, he had to look elsewhere. Now, I'm, I'm not recommending that this is what we should do. We should wait until we've exhausted all our resources and put ourselves into uh, ugly predicaments and then call out to God. But what I am saying is that we should take the sober-minded approach of Paul, who, who realizes that this is a serious thing that we're involved in. We're involved in a plan that's far beyond us, far greater than us, and is more weighty than anything we could ever imagine. Far often we, we, we tend to come to prayer and come to God as if we're just going out for a, a backyard game of football, when in reality we're heading out the tunnel to the Super Bowl. Part of, of our prompting and being provoked to prayer and seeking out God is an understanding of our own predicament. Paul goes on implying that we are feeble and weak creatures when he says that his, he starts off his prayer by saying that he prays that we would be strengthened. This is a different, as I said, different strength than what, what we would tend to think. We, we tend to think of strength as in... Um, physical strength, but this is a spiritual strength. Paul's talking about a strength that's solely biblical in this regard. It's not a, not a universal strength, but it's one that's only born by the Spirit of God. Some of the qualities that he lists here, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. So, one, this strength is only granted by the express permission of God. 
Two, it's communicated through his spirit. So then that leads us to the question of why does Paul pray for this? Why is Paul praying that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit? Well, thankfully, he answers that for us. So that Christ might dwell within our hearts through faith. So, why does Paul pray this to the believers in Ephesus? They're all believers, right? He talked about how, in, in chapter 2, how you were once dead, but now you have been brought to life. In chapter 1, he talks about how that we have the Spirit as a, as a deposit or a guarantee. So then if he's writing to people who have the deposit of the Holy Spirit, why is he writing that they'd be built up in faith, that they'd be strengthened by the Spirit? Don't they already possess this? Well, the reason why is there's varying degrees to which, which Christ might dwell in somebody through faith. There's varying degrees to which one might be strengthened through his spirit. The word dwell here implies a permanence, not a, not a, not a temporal sojourner staying the night over. Christ is not one who's spending the night at a bed and breakfast, but rather one who's got a permanent rootedness in your life. Which leads to the next example. Why, he, he wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. <clears throat> Paul's not just throwing these words around. There is a logical sequence to which he's, he's coming at this. He's saying that as a result of you being strengthened with power through his spirit, as a result of that, Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. As a result of that, you might be rooted and grounded in love. And then what is the purpose of this rootedness and groundedness in love so that we might come to comprehend the love of Christ. So there's also varying degrees to which someone might comprehend the love of Christ. And it's established in the rootedness and groundedness of love. So what does that have to do with comprehending the love of Christ? Well, when I first became a Christian, and up to this point, I've had many experiences of love. More particularly, failing at love. There, there's a sense in which somebody can, when I can seek to love somebody who's pretty much amicable to me, and still struggle to even do that. Struggle to love my wife. Struggle to love my family. Struggle to love my friends well. And then I come across Matthew 5, where Jesus says to love your enemies. Love those who hate you. And I'm struck by my own inadequacy in love. And behind this backdrop of my own failure in love, the more I seek to love, the more I fail at it. The more I fail at it, the more the love of Christ as a banner written in the sky, saying this is, this is the most perfect, most consummate, most perfect love that one can know. And I am so far from it in my own capacities. There's also a sense in which we say how Paul's writing to uh, the group of believers here. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, not just to Martin Kirby, not just to Brian Green. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and we very much see the evolution of Paul's thought here that he first of all prays that you would be granted strength in your inner spirit. So that's a very personal sense in which somebody strengthened. That's, that's the most personal sense in your innermost being that you'd be strengthened 
But, but why the strengthening? So that, so that you might be strengthened to love others. So we're moving from, from the personal to the interpersonal. Because love is not something that's practiced in singularity or isolation. And this much can be seen in the Trinity. <coughs> why, why does the Trinity make sense within Scripture? Well, it's because love, and we all know this empirically, experientially, that, that love doesn't work within the confines of oneself, but that it must be, it's something that has to be shared. There has to be, there's a sacrificial nature to it. He's saying, look, this is something that you can only understand with all the saints. This must be experienced together. Goes on to, to really searching for words here. He continues on, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is getting to this point where he is he's stacked goodness upon goodness upon goodness upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And he's getting to this point where he's saying, look, I want you to know this. I, I want you to be able to understand what it is. And he's, he's trying to, to grasp any analogy or any manner of words that he can to completely wrap around his hands around this thing. But it's not quite possible. But you can see in the sense that there is in this plan that it, he's been unveiled, there's a sense of the breadth of which Christ loves us. And that is that you who were once far off, Gentiles, are now brought in. That there's the, the scope of God's plan is broader than anything we can imagine. And that he describes in chapter 3 that this is a, a timeless plan. In chapter 1, he said that he has chosen us before the foundations of the earth. There, there's an eternal nature that, that Christ has, has bestowed these riches. They're, they're eternal in nature. And his love for us is eternal in nature as well. And then he calls those whom he loves to the greatest heights. He invites us with an inheritance of glory waiting for us. And then he's come to the depths for us. He's loved those people in chapter 2 who were dead, who were following Satan, and who were completely rebellious against him. And he invites those people to experience the fullness of God. Is there any greater sense in which somebody can become more like Christ than that they be filled with the fullness of God? Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is matched by the Christian who comes to know the fullness of God, become more filled with the fullness of God. So, we come to this, this doxology here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I think sometimes I tend to look at doxologies as just poetic language. It's, 
It's the nice bow on the present. I've already got the good stuff, right? But let's just wrap it up, let's give it a nice package, and let's send it off to mom. So is that what all this is? Is this just a happy ending? Is the doxology all, is that all that it is? Or is there more to it? I'd submit to you that this, there's far more to it. That this is the final summation. This is the crux of everything Paul's been working towards. I mentioned that we need to be guarded in our reading of, of the word and this passage in particular, that we, we become so involved in it ourselves that we make it about ourselves. Paul forces us to come out of that. If we have entered into the, the sphere in which we look at this passage just by ourselves, he's yanking us out of it. I say, no, 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 not to you, not to you, to him, to him be the glory. We have a tendency to, to want to take the center of the stage. We watch movies this way. We, we read books this way. We, we insert ourselves into the protagonist's role. But what, what he's saying is, remove yourself. If you want that fullness of God, you must be emptied yourself. And you must remove yourself from the spotlight in order that he might be granted glory. This really reigns over Paul's prayer. Much like he's interceding on behalf of the Ephesians and in the very same sense that, that Moses interceded for the, the Israelites before God and saying, Father, don't do this for your namesake. Paul's saying, Father, do this for your namesake. And so there's a principle of prayer that we can pull from that. That prayer is not guided and ruled by our own desires. It's not guided and ruled by our own, what, what we want to receive, but that instead God's glory is at the forefront. It's preeminent within Paul's prayer. It's preeminent within the, the prayers of David. It is preeminent in the prayer of Moses before God. That so long as our desire for us to be magnified first, as long as, long as that's the case, then we are opposed to God's plan. And his own fulfillment of that. So a, a lesson for us is to take that we must put him first in our prayers even. We must appeal to his nature. We must understand the plan and appeal to that and work within the confines of his plan. That if this plan is for his glorification above all things, then we not only subscribe to that but embrace it. And we pray within those, those, those lines. So, why did Paul pray for love? It's something I was asking myself a lot about this. Why, why love? Why, why does Paul put such an emphasis on us knowing the love of Christ? Will somebody read John 13, 34, and 35? And will somebody else read John 17, 20 through 26? Uh, 17, 20 through 26. 17, 35? Uh, 34 and 35. 17, 30. mm -hmm. okay. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Thank you. So in chapter three, verse ten, Paul Paul has spoken about the fact that in, in the grand plan. God is using the church to derive glory for himself, to display his wisdom. The emphasis that Paul puts on love here begins to make sense when we take the words of Jesus and put them together. See that it's by love that the church is made known. It's by love that there's a, there's a distinction between the world and the church. And it's this distinction, this great distinction between world and church by which God is glorified because of his infinite wisdom. The depths that he's delivered this church from, the world, the Satan, their own flesh, their own selves. And he's put them up here. What an, what an incredible thing he's done. And so, why doesn't Paul just say, go out and love more? Go out and love more. Why does he come to us and say, I pray that God would... Would, would grant you the ability to understand his love. It's because how well does obligation work as a motivation? If you are forced to love somebody, there's not much impetus to do that. The greatest motivation to love others, which glorifies God, distinguishes us from the world, the greatest motivation for that is knowing to a greater and deeper extent that by which Christ has loved us, the degree to which Christ has loved us. So the more that we can understand the way in which Christ loved us, the more we are compelled. I don't need somebody telling me, you need to do this better. You just need to do this better. Why? Because I said so. Christ doesn't do that, thankfully. We have a good Heavenly Father. That Yes, at times does He ask us to do things? Yes, but there is good motive for that. There's good reason why do we love? Because he first loved us. So that we might make him known. So then, how do we make this love ours? How, what, are, what are practical steps? Because we can talk about this abstractly. Yeah, the love of God. Let's make this ours. We can speak about it in concepts. But in what ways can we actually take it and make it ours? Well, there are three central points. One would be the word. What other way can you come to know the way that Christ has loved you other than by reading the book that he's given you? There's Paul, Paul comes to this prayer, and, and he's not praying this, this prayer just based out of uh, thin air. Everything that he's praying is pulled from his knowledge of who God is. How can one come to God and pray unless they know who this God is? Second of all, we come to know the love of Christ by the church. That there's the interpersonal aspect of the church that we come to exhibit this love, fail at this love, and learn love better. We see the love of Christ within the church. 
And then finally, as we mentioned earlier, prayer. Prayer is the way that we access this power. I, I think there's a sense in which we can say, okay, read your Bible, go to church, and pray. Oh, wow, that's mind-blowing. Way to go, John. Thanks for, your, for the word this morning. And I think there's a sense in which we come to this passage and we say, I want that. I doubt there's anybody here that doesn't want that, that doesn't want to know the, the, the fullness of, which, of God and the way in which he's loved us. There's not one of us here that doesn't want to know this more. The fact is, we can't just be inundated by the magnitude of this love and do nothing. The only reasonable thing we can do is to go through the channels by which God unveils and illuminates his love towards us. So I encourage all of you to, to seek those disciplines out. Not, a, not, not in a sense of obligation, but in a sense of through these channels, we are able to know the love of Christ more. And this love produces that same effect in ourselves. So don't scoff at these because they're ordinary means. They're, they're, they're means by which the Spirit of God himself comes and meets us. So let me pray for us. I want to, um, since we spoke about prayer this morning, I think I still have time, right? Yeah, we got to do that. Um, I wanted to do something different. I wanted us to maybe get in groups of three or four and spend time praying for each other as the church. And I think it's easy to come and talk about, yeah, we should, we should pray more. And it's all about the church, and we need to love more, but we need to put the feet on the ground and actually do that. And So let's just spend some time in prayer, 10 minutes maybe. It doesn't matter who you know. If, if, if you know the people around you, pray for the church. Pray for your ability to comprehend the love of Christ. Pray for anything that's on your heart, but pray together. We are the church. We possess that same spirit. So if you guys want to pair up or get in groups, pray. I'll come back up in about 10 minutes, and uh, I'll wrap this up in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for the gathering of your saints today. Um, and we do um, recognize that Father, we, we, we pray for the church and that we are not the whole context of the church, that there is uh, the great universal church out there. And we pray for your church as a whole. We pray for those who are in uh, persecuted areas, uh, for those who are taking the gospel um, to places where it is not uh, fully known, where it is not readily accessible. Uh, we pray, Father, that um, we appeal to your desire to glorify yourself. Please do so. Please Give those uh, who are taking your gospel forth um, strength. Give them um, spiritual ability and uh, reservoirs to accomplish this task. Um, glorify yourself in this manner. We ask that as we, as we go, that we would be strengthened and we would be propelled to take your word to those who are near us and, and that we might take, the, take it to those who are far off from us as well. Uh, Father, we love you. Um, out of response for your love for us, and we thank you uh, for the ultimate display of love that was in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.